We are ready to begin. Well, welcome to live presentation. It's a lot more fun, right? To, to just uh, watch online as we're slowly climbing out of this uh, pitfall of uh, COVID-19. This is a microchip. It can perform millions of calculations per second. This space shuttle, when it was retired, it was an extremely sophisticated machine. It had over 6 million working parts. This is a heart and lung machine. Keeps people alive while cardiac surgeons perform heart operations. This is an electron microscope. You can look at little insects face to face. That's an MRI machine, which can give us a view inside of the brain. These are all extremely sophisticated instruments capable of doing, so you can see wonderful things. But their sophistication comes nowhere close to the human brain, which is a far, far more interesting and more sophisticated mission. That's what we're gonna talk about today. This uh, equipment that most of us have, <laughs> which, uh, which can perform fascinating functions. Now, incredibly, the ancient Egyptians didn't think very much of the brain. When they were mummifying people, they thought that the soul rested in the heart. So they would take out the heart, pickle it, and put it back into the body cavity. But the brain, they would suck out and throw away. They didn't think that it would be necessary in the afterlife. But what an interesting piece of equipment the brain is. And what's the difference between the brain that Einstein had and the brain that Jack the Ripper had? Both humans, both men, if you would take a look at their brain, they would look the same. What's the difference? Well, obviously, there has to be some significant differences in chemistry, something that made Einstein be brilliant and uh, Jack the Ripper a criminal. And obviously, we could take many, many examples like that. The uh, quest for understanding how the brain functions essentially goes back to Franz Joseph Gall, in the late 18th century. He believed that there were different parts of the brain that performed different activities. And that this, these parts could in fact be evaluated by looking at the skull. He believed that the protrusions in the brain would be reflected in the shape of the, of the skull. Very interesting idea that was then elaborated on by Johann Gaspar Spurzheim, who introduced what they called the science, of course, today we would call it the pseudoscience of phrenology. The idea of diagnosing diseases of the brain and function of the brain by taking a look at the shape of the skull. Now, Spurzheim became very famous. He would give public lectures. He's a ticket from one of his public lectures on uh, the concept. And the concept was that the brain had different areas that would be indicative of personality if these some of these areas were better developed, underdeveloped, etc. And that these could be diagnosed by examining the skull. And that's what phrenologists did. They would diagnose the personality by taking a look at the shape of the skull. 
Now, as you might imagine, uh, there was a lot of opposition to this because even back then, most scientists thought that this was absolute quackery. And there were cartoons like this one, making fun of, uh, of the phrenologists. But nevertheless, <laughs> this phenomenon caught on to the extent that even people like Thomas Edison believed in phrenology. Uh, Edison was a very interesting guy. I mean, obviously very clever in terms of inventions, but he, he also was an out and out racist. Uh, but he did believe in, in uh, phrenology, as did Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. And in fact, he described Sherlock Holmes as having a very large forehead, because according to phrenology, it was the frontal part of the skull that would indicate, in terms of size, the capacity of the brain and therefore intelligence. He also described Sherlock Holmes's arch nemesis, Professor Moriarty, as having a large protruding uh, forehead. And uh, maybe he did this because he himself, Conan Doyle, also uh, at least thought that he had a, a forehead that was indicative of uh, increased brain size. Well, uh, as you probably know, because I've, I've mentioned this often enough, Conan Doyle was a real enigma. He was a physician, properly medically trained. And um, of course he created the, the greatest scientific detective in, in, in English literature. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, of course, was well known for his intellect and for his critical thinking. And yet Conan Doyle himself believed in spirits. He was a spiritualist. He believed that um, Little girls who had claimed that they had seen fairies in the woods, the so-called cottonly fairies, pictures like that taken by the little girls, he believed that this was uh, real. He believed that they had really seen fairies in, in the woods. Those were just cutouts from a catalog that these little, clever little girls hung on a string. But Conan Doyle would not accept that these pictures had been faked basically because he didn't believe that an aristocrat, intelligent guy like himself could be fooled by two 15-year-old girls. But indeed, he, he was fooled. So the phrenology was not very indicative in, in his case of, of critical thinking. The brain, uh, such a mysterious organ. And when we come down to this you know, phrenology business, it was the human brain that also created this nonsense about phrenology, including the psychograph, which was an actual instrument that was supposed to detect the shape of the skull and determine someone's level of intelligence. And this is what it actually looked like. It looked like sort of a, a hairdryer, and it would be placed on the some top of someone's head, and there were these little prongs inside that would align themselves with the different parts of the skull, touching the skull, and somehow they would, uh, at least the claim was that they would diagnose the, the quality of the brain inside, and people would line up to get their brain measured in this way, very often in lobbies of theaters, you would uh, have a display uh, like this, and then you would get a report. And here is a typical one. You can see it was able to, to diagnose all of these conditions, individuality, uh, uh, self-esteem, constructiveness, uh, secretiveness, love of life, uh, a whole industry, a money-making industry, based upon total nonsense. So the brain is capable of creating total uh, nonsense. But interestingly enough, there was some smidgen of science behind phrenology, at least in the sense that the brain actually does have different parts responsible for different functions. I mean, this is something that is, is well understood today, right? 
but obviously it has nothing to do with the shape of the skull. Now let's talk about one of the most amazing episodes when it comes to understanding the brain. It takes us back to September 13, 1848, and a terrible accident that occurred not too far from here. It was actually in, in Vermont. And uh, described here in uh, a newspaper clipping from the Times, uh, Phineas Gage was a foreman on a crew uh, that was uh, laying tracks, uh, railroad tracks. And of course, when you're, real, you're putting down railroad tracks, you have to get rid of all obstacles in the way. And there were boulders that had to be moved. And if the boulders were too large to move, they had to be broken down by explosives. And uh, the way that that was done, way in fact it still is done today, is to drill a hole into the boulder, fill it with gunpowder, light it, and blow the thing apart so that smaller pieces can be moved. Phineas's gauge, his job, was to bore the hole, pack it with gunpowder, and the way that they would do that would be to use a large damping rod to push the gunpowder in. Well, what happened in this case is that the friction of the metal rod against the stone created a spark that ignited the gunpowder and basically like a bullet, it shot out the rod that he was using. And he happened to be holding that rod it went right through his head. Now this is uh, uh, depicted in a monument that is on the highway. When you drive down to Vermont, you can stop and see, see there at Cavendish. It is the gauge accident. Now what was amazing about this is that he survived. This is what happened. As you can see, it went right through his cheek. It destroyed one eye came out the top of his head and he lived. Here's a real picture of Gage after this whole episode when a large part of his brain was destroyed. But he was functional, but his character changed. Before the accident, he was a mild-mannered, nice guy. After it, he became a loathsome swearing fiend. But physically, he was capable of doing everything. Quite remarkable. If you go to the Warren Museum in Boston, if you ever happen to be there, the Warren Anatomical Museum is, is part of, of uh, Harvard University. You can see Phineas Gage's skull. There it is. after he was dead. <laughs> and you can see that the rod went through here, came out the top of his head. Just amazing. And there is the rod. In the skull. So you can see that you can survive dramatic injuries to the brain. It all depends on what part of the brain uh, is affected. Well, it was well known by the 1950s that um, certain kinds of mental illness could be curtailed by severing one part of the brain. And uh, Dr. Walter Freeman was a properly trained surgeon who carried out such operations on mentally ill people, essentially putting a spike up their nose to make a, basically an incision in, in the brain. Now you would think that this is barbaric and nonsensical, which basically was, but believe it or not, some very, very well-known people were caught up in this. That's the Kennedy family. Joseph Kennedy, who was a piece of work. Uh, this of course is JFK. And uh, his daughter Rose, who was mentally ill, but Joseph Kennedy could not stand the idea that one of his children was impaired. 
So he had uh, her undergo surgery, like the Freeman surgery. Uh, of course, it was useless. She ended up in an, in, in an asylum. Uh, there was a movie, of course, that, that uh, talked about such brutal interventions of the brain. And that was Jack Nicholson and once flew over the cuckoo's nest. Mm -hmm. And it gives you an idea of, of um, the horrible way that mentally ill people were treated right up, up to the 1960s, actually. All right, well, getting back to differences in, in brains, <clears throat> Einstein. Well, of course, any time you talk about brain, you know, Einstein comes up with an example of, of the ultimate uh, smartness, the ultimate brain. Is there any anatomical difference? Well, he willed his brain to be given to science. Uh, he died of an aortic aneurysm. His brain was excised and it was cut into little pieces so that it could be um, examined. And here are pieces of Einstein's brain. And the doctor who performed the autopsy, uh, Thomas Harvey, actually kept Einstein's brain, or at least pieces of it, in these bottles on a shelf in his office. He examined them carefully. He couldn't see any kind of difference from any other brain. And uh, a piece of the brain was given to Dr. Sandra Whittleson at uh, McMaster University, uh, who examined it more carefully. They had better microscopes and discovered that there actually was a difference there's a part of the brain called the lateral sulcus, which divides two parts of the brain. And that part was much more developed in Einstein's brain. And uh, there is the, the theory that, that when some parts of the brain are better developed, that may be indicative of, of, uh, of brightness. But uh, there's a lot of controversy about this because of course the brain is so complicated, there's so many different features. But what we do know, is that the brain is actually made of nerve cells that are called neurons. And here we're looking at one single neuron, but actually the brain contains trillions of these neurons. It is like a massive network. Uh, you know, one analogy that is very often given is, is to a telephone network. Right, and uh, some of you may remember when telephones first started to be introduced, you would actually call up an operator, and the operator would take one cable and plug it into into a hole. Well, that would be an example of a very simple network, where you actually have to you know connect cables. Well, this is a much more sophisticated network. But it really is a collage of cables that connect nerve cells. And because you have trillions of these nerve cells, I mean, they have different functions and all kinds of things can go wrong. Well, let's take a, a closer uh, look at it. Here we have two adjacent um, nerve cells. And nerve cells function via electricity. There's an electrical impulse that can stimulate action in adjacent nerve cell. However, the nerve cells do not actually touch. If we take a look, close-up look here, uh, the axon, which is the one long arm of the nerve cell, does not touch the receiving arm, the so-called dendrite of an adjacent cell. There's a small gap there, it's called the synapse. And the way that information is transmitted is that an electrical impulse that travels along the, the, uh, the axon will release chemicals, we call them neurotransmitters. They fit into a receptor of the adjacent cell, much like a hand fits into a glove. And if it's the right fit, the message gets sent along. Of course, all of this happens very quickly. When you place your hand on a hot stove, you don't have to think about whether you should take it off or not, right? Happens immediately because the message of heat has traveled up to your brain and, and another message came quickly back down to remove your, your hand. But the way that those messages travel is via this system. So it is at the synapse that 
the action really takes place in the brain. When chemicals are released, they, they traverse the gap, fit into a receptor, and messages get sent along. <clears throat> uh, if this doesn't work properly, then of course there are all kinds of issues that, that can arise. And the one that is the most foreboding, the most worrisome to people is Alzheimer's disease. When essentially the brain doesn't function properly, it gets all cloudy. Alzheimer's disease is uh, named after Alois Alzheimer, a German uh, physician who in 1901, basically described the first ever such case. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that a disease didn't exist before. Of course it did. But he was the first one to actually have a patient. Uh, the, uh, the patient was a 50-year-old woman who came to Alzheimer, who was a, basically a general practitioner, with a very strange complaint. She said, I have lost myself. She thought she was no longer herself. She could not remember things properly. She knew that her actions were sometimes strange, but she was still well enough to recognize that she wasn't well. And she agreed to be Alzheimer's patient and to donate her brain after she died, very much like Einstein much later would, would agree to this um, as well. And when she died, uh, indeed, uh, she uh, got her wish and the brain was removed and Alzheimer's examined it and looked through a microscope at the, at the brain and made drawings. And these are Alzheimer's original drawings in his own hand because he saw that the nerve cells were somehow abnormal. And he didn't really uh, know anything about the, the, you know, what the abnormality was, but he saw that there were parts of the brain that had these abnormal cells as opposed to other parts where it looked more normal. And he described these so-called neurofibrillate tangles. He saw these the little deposits in the brain that he did not see in healthy brains. Now, today, of course, we know a lot more about this. Here would be a healthy network of, uh, of neurons. And here is what Alzheimer's looks like through a microscope. What you have here are these deposits of proteins called amyloids, and they muck up the machinery. These are the deposits that interfere with the transmission of information. Now, in the case of Alzheimer's, the neurotransmitter, the chemical that is impaired is called acetylcholine. And acetylcholine is one of the many neurotransmitters that have been identified, but it plays a very important role in memory. So what happens when you remember something is that a message gets sent from one nerve cell to the other, one nerve cell releases acetylcholine, it fits into the receptor. And if it's the right fit, then the message gets transmitted along and we have a memory. If that message is somehow impaired, then brain function becomes impaired. Now, once a molecule of acetylcholine has done its job, fit into a receptor, triggered the reaction, it then is broken down. And it's broken down by an enzyme called acetylcholine esterase. So here's a good depiction of it. So here's a nerve cell that releases acetylcholine. It fits into a receiving nerve cell. If it's the right fit, the right hand into the right glove, information gets transmitted. Once it has done its job, because otherwise there would be constant overstimulation, it is broken down by an enzyme called acetylcholine esterase. So we know that in uh, Alzheimer's disease, there is impairment of this function. So the message does not get transmitted properly because there's 
either lack of production of acetylcholine, or it gets broken down too quickly, or for some reason it doesn't fit exactly into the into the re receiving nerve cell. So the question is, what causes such amyloid deposits? Right. I mean, this is of course what intrigues researchers who are trying to figure out what's going on here with Alzheimer's disease. What what causes it? And you may remember when in the 1960s, when we first started to see a lot of discussion about Alzheimer's disease, because average life expectancy was increasing, and of course, Alzheimer's is an age-related disease, right? One of the first theories was that it had something to do with aluminum. Why was that? Because when they investigated brains, autopsy brains, they found deposits of aluminum in the brains of people who had suffered from Alzheimer's disease. Now, that was an interesting finding. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, uh, attention focused on aluminum. This is where the gremlins were. If you were cooking in aluminum pots, this meant that you were at greater risk for Alzheimer's disease. Well, it turns out that this is not so. Yes, there are deposits of aluminum in Alzheimer's brains, but that doesn't mean that the aluminum is responsible. In fact, it is the consequence of the disease, not the cause, as we now understand. So a diseased brain will retain aluminum, but the aluminum does not cause the disease. So the question is, what can be done? One uh, idea is to increase levels of this neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. But how do you do that? Well, as I explained to you, in uh, normal functioning, once acetylcholine has done its job, it's broken down by this enzyme acetylcholinesterase. So if you can somehow inhibit that enzyme by what we call cholinesterase inhibitors, you will increase levels of acetylcholine. In theory, that should improve function, it should improve uh, memory. There is a drug that is very commonly used for this, and that is called Aricept. And this is the, the, uh, the drug that so far has had the, the greatest benefit in cases of Alzheimer's disease, although the, uh, the benefit is minute. It, uh, it may put off institutionalization for maybe three or four months, uh, it does not reverse the disease. It certainly doesn't cure the disease. It has a mild short-term effect. Just suppose it's better than nothing, uh, but uh, it basically has been a disappointment. So the Aristept uh, generically is donapazil. Uh, there are a number of others uh, which have the same mechanism of action not any better than, than uh, Aricept. Uh, galantamine is interesting because this is extracted from a plant. It's uh, extracted from a plant called the snowdrop. Uh, and uh, of course, this that is capitalized on by the natural health people who sell extracts of this plant in their health food stores, which is total nonsense because the amount that is contained in there is insignificant. When it is used as a, as a drug, it's extracted by pharmaceutical companies from large amounts of the, of, of the plant. So, uh, so far, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, Aricept is, is not the, the answer that originally it was purported to be. Now, there is an, uh, a newer uh, concept in terms of uh, uh, battling the disease. And these are the so-called monoclonal antibodies. Now, you've heard about these recently in a different context, uh, in the context of COVID-19, where these are used. Well, very quickly, let me just explain what these are. Antibodies are proteins that are generated by the body in response to a foreign invader. So, for example, when you're infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus in, with COVID-19, 
once that virus is in your body, the body says, I don't want this. I don't want this in my body. And it generates these special proteins called antibodies, which latch onto that virus. They also learn to recognize that virus so that the next time that it gets into your system, these antibodies recognize it and neutralize it. Monoclonal antibodies are antibodies that are made in the laboratory by sophisticated processes that are designed to target specific, what we call antigens. These are substances that the body recognizes as, a, as an insult. So the idea here with the monoclonal antibodies is to try to manufacture antibodies in the laboratory that recognize those protein deposits in Alzheimer's brains as foreign substances and try to break them down. Now the concept in the laboratory certainly works. So the idea here is that, you know, here's this neural network that we have described and you get these deposits of the amyloid proteins which clog up the machinery. You wanna break those down. And that's what the monoclonal antibodies can do. Now there is research in the laboratory that shows that this, this can happen. And once you've shown that something can work in the laboratory, the next step of course is to mount, uh, first of all, safety trials. You may you wanna make sure before you even think about whether or not the drug is effective, you have to make sure that it's safe. So the safety trials initially are done on animals. So anyway, once it looks like it's safe, then you can start to do human trials to see how effective it is. Well, the first monoclonal antibody that was introduced was Aduhelm. Now, those of you who followed the lay literature at all about scientific issues will know that this has been unbelievably controversial. Uh, Aduhelm was developed uh, in the last 10 years. And there were some clinical trials that seemed to show some efficacy. And because there really is no effective drug for Alzheimer's, there's an inordinate push to come up with something that works at least some of the time. Well, it looked like some clinical studies showed some mild effectiveness in how uh, Aduhelm generated these antibodies that broke down the deposits in the brain. As you can imagine, it got a lot of publicity. First of all, because it had a mechanism of action that's understandable, that, that makes sense. And everyone was hoping to have some sort of new drug that was effective against Alzheimer's. So uh, Biogen, which is a company that manufactured it, um, presented the results to FDA for the drug administration in the US and got approval. But boy, was that ever controversial because first of all, three members of the advisory committee, uh, FDA's advisory committee resigned when the committee voted to introduce this drug because they said, and remember, these are experts, these are world-class experts. They said that there just isn't enough evidence to, to make this worthwhile. So they voted uh, against it. Uh, but the Alzheimer's societies, and of course, as many of those around the world, uh, just wanted something they were desperate to be able to tell people, to give them some hope. Uh, there was a lot of controversy about this. I mean, these are just some of the uh, headlines. You can see, for example, the Cleveland Clinic. Cleveland Clinic is, is one of the most reputable uh, institutions in the world. And they have said that they will not administer it because they didn't think that the risk benefit profile was uh, advantageous. And there were all kinds of, of, of uh, organizations that were opposed to this. And there were allegations that um, 
somehow FDA was just too close to, to Biogen and um, they were somehow uh, unduly influenced. Canada never approved it and we don't, we don't have it. Uh, and the Alzheimer's Society, which originally was very much in favor of this, when they heard of the US research results, they wanted it in, in Canada, but it, ne it never happened. Now, believe it or not, the Canadian government is much more stringent than the Americans in terms of drug approval. And uh, this is also, of course, because we have the luxury of looking at the American data. We don't have to do things from scratch. So you look at the American data, and see whether or not it's, it's worthwhile. And the Canadian government said, no, this is not, uh, it's just not worth it. Worth it, of course, also brings in the question of money. You wanna know how much it would cost per year? $30,000 a year per patient. So you can see why there, of course, is opposition. I mean, if you're going to spend $30,000 per patient per year, you want to have a drug that actually shows results. And the results that are seen with this are really, really minor. So we're not going to see this in, in, in Canada. But just this week, a new monoclonal antibody was introduced. And this is a, a collaborative effort between Biogen, which is the company that introduced Adelman, and a Japanese company, Isai. This is Lecanemab. Uh, and you'll notice that you'll see these days a lot of drugs that end in, in uh, MAB. That ending signifies monoclonal antibody. So this is really a novel technology. So this is a, a Japanese version of a monoclonal antibody, uh, very similar to the one that we just described. But of course, everyone is now looking to, to find a better one. And uh, so we just had this study just came out, as you can see, September 28th, um, slows cognitive decline by 27%. You always have to be very careful when you see headlines like that especially when it is described in terms of percentages. That is very often misleading. To give you the ultimate example, if you buy a lottery ticket, you have a very, very small chance of winning, right? If you buy two lottery tickets, you've increased your chances of winning by how much? 100%, right? but it's still meaningless. So uh, a percentage increase in a very small number still leaves you with a very small number. So when you see that it's slowed cognitive decline by 27%, I mean, if the original cognitive decline is very small, then even increasing it by 27% is meaningless, right? And that's where it, it stands now. Now, they, they certainly do have some science behind it. I mean, they have done proper randomized trials to show that there is this difference. But already, even though, you know, this was just publicized, as you can see last week, there already are articles in the scientific literature about how, you know, meaningless this is. And that, I mean, this is in the same price range as the one that I just showed. So uh, it just is not worthwhile to, you know. the only reason that this is even worthwhile to talk about, because if there is at least some small difference, which there is, then you can always hope that you're going to design a drug that is better and be able to increase that effectiveness. And as you know, science does not go along by giant leaps and bounds. Uh, it progresses series of small steps. So this is a small step, but uh, I think that you know many of the newspaper accounts already are, are painting a picture of this as if it was some sort of breakthrough, but it is not. Now this idea of, of uh, the chemistry of the brain being clogged up in some way, 
uh, is not limited only to Alzheimer's disease. I mean, there are many other diseases of the brain that can be explained in terms of, of, uh, of chemistry. And one of these is Parkinson's disease. Now here, uh, we have much, much better drugs than for Alzheimer's. It is actually, chemically speaking, it's a simpler disease to, to deal with. There's a, a in uh, Alzheimer's disease, there's one part of the brain called the substantia nigra, uh, which is the one that is, uh, is diseased. And uh, this is where uh, the neurotransmitter dopamine plays a very important role in terms of muscular movements and also in, in, in terms of, of, of memory. And once again, the, the analogy is, is appropriate, a, a hand going into a glove. In this case, the problem isn't acetylcholine, it's a different kind of neurotransmitter, dopamine. In Parkinson's disease, if you have a deficiency of dopamine or something that impairs the dopamine from fitting into receptor adjacent cell, that's when you have Parkinson's disease. And the idea here then for the treatment of the disease is, is pretty straightforward. What you want to do is enhance dopamine concentrations in the space between the nerve cells, that is the space, the, the so-called synapse. So in a normal brain, you have dopamine released, it fits into receptor cells, everything works fine. In a diseased brain, there's not enough dopamine that is being produced, and therefore, there's all kinds of impairment of movement because the dopamine is not able to stimulate nerve cells properly. What causes this? Uh, again, there are many theories, some of which um, hold more water than others. For example, we know that certain pesticides uh, can uh, result in uh, Parkinson's disease. And uh, this is uh, certainly of importance to pesticide applicators. There's no significance for people at home who may occasionally you know, spray a couple of weeds on their lawn. That's not, uh, but there certainly are pesticides, some synthetic, some natural, in high exposure will result in dopamine deficiency. Now, dopamine is a relatively simple molecule chemically. There it is. And Cinemet is the drug that is used to treat Parkinson's disease. What is Cinemet? It's dopamine. So if you can artificially increase dopamine levels, you can treat Parkinson's disease. And it is treatable. It is not curable. You can treat the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, at least in the short term. Eventually, um, the body gets um, attuned to the dopamine and becomes resistant uh, to it. So eventually the effect wears off. But you can have very, very significant improvement in Parkinson's symptoms, uh, at least initially with dopamine. I mean, sometimes it, it's even miraculous. Uh, people regain their function. Uh, it just will eventually wear off. Sometimes for years, sometimes, unfortunately, in, in months. There are some, some other conditions that also uh, mimic uh, Parkinson's disease in that they use dopamine. Um, and if you remember the movie Awakenings, uh, where patients are essentially uh, paralyzed, but when they are given dopamine, they uh, essentially unfreeze and then come back to the to life. And uh, uh, that was a very dramatic movie, Awakenings. And, and it's, it was based on uh, Oliver Sacks's uh, books. Oliver Sacks was a neurologist, and he was the one who described this disease and, and documented the improvement with dopamine. It's a very interesting uh, movie to, to see. Other brain uh, diseases, things like uh, MS. Uh, now, this is not a neurotransmitter deficiency. This is a problem 
with the protective layer around the uh, uh, axons uh, through which the electrical impulse goes. Uh, this protective layer is very much like the insulation around the electrical wire. And if that insulation wears away, the current doesn't flow properly. And that's what happens in uh, MS. MS is not curable. Uh, there are some drugs that will reduce the symptoms somewhat, uh, but uh, essentially there are no brain diseases that really are, are curable. It is also um, an unfortunate fact that the brain is very, very susceptible to various kinds of toxins. If you remember the Lewis Carroll stories about uh, Alice and the Mad Hatter, well, where did this idea of a mad hatter come from? Because back then in the 1800s, when uh, Through the Looking Glass and Alice in Wonderland were written, men wore top hats, which were made of felt. Well, in order to process the felt properly, they used mercury nitrate. Now, of course, at that time, they didn't really know about the consequences of this. You know, it's, it's always tempting to kind of look back and say, you know, what stupidity to use, you know, mercury, you know, immerse your hands in this. But of course, they had no idea at that time about you know, tox toxicology. Uh, mercury indeed is nasty, although the metal itself, the shiny lustry metal is not the worst form. It's the compounds of mercury, like mercury nitrates, that's, that's the problem. The metallic mercury uh, does not evaporate so easily. I mean, you still don't want to be around it a lot, but it's the compounds of mercury that are a real problem. And mercury occurs in nature. It is found in coal, it's found in petroleum. And when you burn coal or you burn petroleum, the mercury gets into the air. And then it gets washed down by rain, and that's how it gets into fish, right? Because it gets down and washed down to lakes, rivers, and oceans, and there it concentrates in, in the fish. And some fish, of course, will have more mercury than others. Lead is another issue. And this too impairs brain function, very much like mercury does. Uh, the, Lead is actually a bigger problem than mercury because even trace amounts of lead can cause a problem. With mercury, you need somewhat higher, higher doses. That's why eating small fish, which may contain some mercury, is not, is not unsafe. It's the large fish, which are predatory, that eat the smaller fish and concentrate the mercury. That's where you have the, the problem. Well, lead. Now, Poisoning from lead can be traced back to the ancient Romans and their aqueducts. The Romans built, they were fantastic engineers. I mean, they would transport water from high grounds to low grounds. That's what these aqueducts were. These aqueducts were nothing more than a scaffolding to hold a water pipe. Here it is. So you're looking at a Roman aqueduct from the top, and there's the water pipe. It's made of lead because lead is a metal that's very malleable. You can shape it very, very easily. Now, obviously they had no idea that the trace amounts of lead that would leach into the water could cause a problem. How would they have had any kind of idea? They also stored their wine in lead vessels. And of course the Romans were notorious for all the feasts that they had and a lot of wine that they consumed. And there's even theory that the reason that the Roman Empire collapsed was because the Roman generals were mentally impaired and made terrible mistakes in, in warfare because of the lead intoxication. Much, much more relevant to us is the poisoning of children with lead because up to about 10 years ago, lead-based paints were very common. And when these flakes off, they get into the air, they get onto the hands, you can contaminate, but also hungry children will eat anything and they would eat some the pieces of paint coming off, off walls, a real cause for lead poisoning. Now here, of course, what we worry about is lead in the water. 
and there can't be lead in the water for, for several uh, reasons. As long as it is under 10 parts per billion, I don't think it's a cause for worry. Uh, certainly not for anyone who's not an infant or is not pregnant. I think uh, you know a great deal here has been made about testing for lead in your water, all, all of that. That's very important for children, not so important for adults. None of you have to worry about uh, your brain being damaged by lead. It's too late for that. It's already damaged. Um, but how does it get into, into the water? Well, there are many, many ways. First of all, plumbers used to use lead solder because it's very easy to work with. That's no longer legal. Just because it's no longer legal doesn't mean that they don't use it. Um, lead uh, pipes, uh, very commonly found. Mostly the pipes that connect your house to the main system. Uh, but again, this is only an issue when you're dealing with uh, uh, small children or during uh, pregnancy. It's relatively easy to test for it. Uh, you know, uh, any, there are many laboratories that will test for lead. And uh, there are filters that you can buy if you're concerned. Uh, and people, uh, companies like Zero Water or Rita make filters that will remove lead. But as I said, I, I think at this stage of our lives, I, I don't think that uh, it's an issue. There are other things to worry about. <laughs> now, there are uh, all sorts of mysteries about the brain, obviously. Some interesting things, for example, you look at this picture. Some of you will see Bill Clinton playing the saxophone. Others will see a picture of a woman. Now, of course, once you get focused in on it, then you'll see both. Okay. So there's the saxophone. There's the eye of the lady. Okay, once it's pointed out, then of course you see. But why is it that some people see one and not the other? Nobody knows. If I show you something even more interesting. About half of you will be able to read this without any problem. Now, isn't it amazing that you can read this, even though the words are nonsensical? I couldn't believe that I could actually, right? Because the brain will fill in the, the real letters for the nonsensical ones. For some people, not for everyone. <laughs> Amazing, huh? Doesn't look like amazing, but you know that it's amazing. And then there is the so-called 10% myth that we're only using 10% of our brain. And if only if we could learn to use the rest of it, how wonderful it would be. Well, it's not true that we only use 10% of our brain. That's just a, a, a total myth. But it's a myth that gets propagated like this, our minds are capable of remarkable, incredible feats, yet we don't use them to full capacity. In fact, most of us only use about 10% of our brains, if that. Who is the brilliant person who gives us this information? This is Uri Geller, he of uh, spoon banding fame. Well, he uses 100% of his brain because he's so adept at fooling people, you know, with all of this, uh, this nonsense. Anyway, I mean, that is just a total myth that you only use 10% of our, our, our brain. It is also fascinating that you can get away with significant brain damage, as I showed you with Phineas Gage. Here's one. Man lives normal life without normal brain. It's not about Trump, but, Here's an x-ray of this man's brain. And you can see that the brain has actually been squeezed to the sides of the skull. There's almost nothing in the middle. 
he is virtually empty-headed. Here's the the, uh, the X-ray. You see the normal brain on the other side, and you see his brain. All of the tissues of the brain have been squeezed to the side, and yet he functions. So there are a lot of mysteries. What can we do to try to sharpen the brain? All kinds of things have been tried historically. Peter Halverson believes that drilling a small hole in the skull somehow improves brain function by releasing pressure that the brain otherwise feels. In 1972, he actually drilled a hole into his own skull. And then, being an advocate, he advocated for others to do this. 2001, he actually had a lady come from England to undergo this treatment. Let me read this. Two men who helped carry out a bizarre procedure in which a hole was drilled in a British woman's head have been spared jail. Trepanic, is what this procedure is called, is thought by some proponents of alternative medicine to improve mental capacity by relieving pressure on the brain and improving blood flow. Heather Perry from Gloucester, England, traveled to Utah last February to undergo a procedure aided by Peter Halverson and William Lyons. Both men pleaded guilty to practicing medicine without a license and were fined and put on probation. Both were also ordered to undergo a mental health evaluation. Wonder what the outcome of that was, right? Ms. Perry, a chronic fatigue sufferer who has since returned to the UK, said she experienced a definite improvement in her health since the procedure, although she had some leakage of her spinal fluid. It's really kind of amazing what people will do. If you remember some of the P.G. Woodhouse stories about Jeeves, Jeeves, the butler, who's brilliant, but whenever he needs some extra help, uh, Wooster tells him to go and eat some sardines because these are supposed to be great for the brain. And, you know, there's all kinds of stories about fish being good for the brain. And uh, some of this actually does have some scientific uh, legitimacy. Here's one such study, pregnant mom eats fish, kids do better. So if you're pregnant, yeah, you want to eat fish and you'll give birth to kids with higher IQs. So goes the, uh, so goes the story. Then look at this one. If you want your kids to have higher IQ, low calorie sugar substitutes consumption like artificial sweeteners during adolescence appears to impair memory later in life. Well, then you say to yourself, all right, I better make sure my kids are not eating artificial sweeteners. But in science, the devil is in the details. Because it turns out that when you look beyond just the headline, it was done in rats. So yeah, uh, giving rats artificial sweeteners did impair early brain function. Who knows whether or not it will do anything in, in, in people. And then if you watch TV at night, you will have seen all kinds of ads for Prevagen, Improving, improving memory, this is a total scam. And uh, the uh, Federal Trade Commission has sued them. But how come you still see the ads? Because they pay the fines. It's still worthwhile for them to pay huge fines because the profits are, 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 are so large. Uh, it's terrible because it's a totally useless uh, product. What about um, exercising your brain, training your brain? You've heard stories that doing crossword puzzles is, is very helpful. This actually has been studied, and here it is. Crosswords are fun, but they don't do very much for you. What about playing chess? Well, that also has been investigated. And uh, there is some minor evidence that people who play chess uh, have somewhat reduced risk of developing dementia. But again, the evidence is, is not, uh, not great. There are all kinds of programs out there, brain training uh, programs that uh, you know, supposedly improve your memory, sharpen your reflexes, cognitive skills, etc. It's a whole industry. So there's all kinds of apps and computer programs, etc. And uh, these have been examined as well. 
And, you know, in, in science, we go by the peer-reviewed research. That's, that's you know, our, our basis for thinking about whether something is worthwhile or not. So uh, in this particular case, they looked at all of these um, tools that are out there to that claim to improve your memory. And the, um, the bottom line is that the evidence is minute, that any of those games or anything will improve uh, uh, memory. So that's, uh, that's our story. But one thing for sure that will improve your cognitive abilities, improve your brain functions, is coming to lectures like this. <laughs> so now you're, you're already smarter than you were when you came. Of course, the question is, how much of it will you remember by the time you walk out this door? Okay. Uh, any questions? Yeah. You know, there's there's virtually no issue in science about which there is not some controversy. And uh, while the amyloid proteins certainly are found in Alzheimer's disease, but there's another type of protein called the tau protein, and some people think that that's more damaging. But um, there certainly is enough evidence that you don't want these amyloid deposits in, in the brain. Uh, because uh, the, uh, just the fact that the monoclonal antibodies work to some extent, even though it's a you know, minimal extent, that does show that impairing the formation of, of uh, the amyloid proteins is meaningful. But, you know, it's... Uh, Chances are that Alzheimer's disease is, is, you know, much more complex than just a simple deposit of the protein. Yeah. Blood-brain barrier? The blood-brain barrier is, uh, as the name implies, it's, it's a tissues that, that surround the brain that kind of act like a, a protective sieve. And there are some molecules that can cross that blood-brain barrier and others that cannot. So for example, the, the reason that, that we cannot just take uh, uh, acetylcholine as a drug for Alzheimer's, which in theory should work, is because it cannot cross the blood-brain barrier. Unfortunately, things like lead and mercury can. So the blood-brain barrier is a protective device, but it's not foolproof. But it does prevent some substances from getting into the brain. Yeah. It can. I mean, obviously, this you know, if you, if you have long-term cognitive problems, that's the brain is being uh, being affected. Uh, the uh, the virus certainly can get into the brain because it goes through the blood bloodstream, right? And the blood circulates through the brain. Uh, but you know, even with the long COVID, there's a lot of controversy there about. Uh, you know, how real it is as opposed to perception, you know, the nocebo effect, uh, because it turns out that the more you hear about long-term COVID, the more people claim that they are affected by it. Uh, and I mean, the nocebo effect, which is, you know, sort of the bad cousin of the placebo effect, <laughs> where uh, the placebo effect, of course, is when you think something is going to do you good, it can the nocebo effect is the opposite. If you think something is going to be harmful, it can be harmful without it being physically harmful, just generated by, by the brain. Um, it's, it's very common, for example, for, uh, I mean, this is well documented, especially on, on airplanes, for example. If someone gets sick on an airplane and starts complaining of, of you know, stomach problems or diarrhea, 
other people will start feeling sick as well. That's well documented. And so the more you hear about long COVID, the more likely you are to experience yeah. symptoms. Or other, maybe a better way to say it is that whenever you have normal symptoms that people have anyway, some adverse symptoms, you will then ascribe it to uh, either to COVID or to the vaccine. Because that's another interesting aspect of uh, of the brain is that it tries to make connections. I mean, whenever you don't feel well, you think that you're sick, first thing that you are thinking is, where did this come from? What did I do wrong? Or, you know, how did I act anxious? And then they, the, you'll start to forge connections, which may not be meaningful. Like, you know, you, you start to convert an association into a cause and effect relationship. You know? So uh, if you take people who, who claim that they've, let's say, had the vaccine and then had adverse symptoms, they make the jump to saying that the symptoms come from the, the vaccine, whereas those symptoms may be experienced by everyone else who didn't get the vaccine. But if you feel sick and you start thinking, what you know, what have I been doing? And if you happen to have gotten the vaccine, you'll make this the connection. What can you tell us about familial tremors? Is it like Parkinson's? Or... Yes, uh, yeah. Uh, these these tremors, uh, familial trouble. Uh, the symptoms look very much like Parkinson's, but it's not a it's not due to dopamine deficiency. So dopamine will not help that. It's very often an inherited, inherited condition. And um, I mean, there are some drugs that will reduce the, the tremor, but will not cure the underlying disease. What causes it, I think, is, is totally unknown, except that it's genetic. OK, so we'll see you uh, next month. And maybe there'll even be a few more next month.